Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. And of course, my name is Derek Graham, and I'm here with my friend and colleague, Nitin Gower. And good morning, Nitin. Hey, Derek. Uh, it's good evening here. Good morning to you. Uh, great to be back, um, back in Austin. Uh, and again, a lot happening in this space. Now that the merge news has died down, uh, let's give chance to other things that are happening around crypto. <laughs> exactly. Look, listeners will know that throughout these episodes, I've weaved in the occasional Star Trek statement or, or, <laughs> or quote and I can't help but weave in one today. And that is, resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. <laughs> and as many watchers of Star Trek know, the maverick crew of Star Trek don't get assimilated. They do resist and they think their way around it. And that's the story of creativity versus existent methodologies. But today, we're going to continue our discussion around what we were doing last week. So listeners might remember that last week we talked about tr transitional technology. We talked about the proposed EDX exchange, which is funded by these great intermediaries, such as Citadel, Fidelity, Charles Swab, and a team of VCs. And that exchange was designed to look, smell, and feel like a traditional equities exchange so that institutions would be comfortable on onboarding. So I suggested that the time, in fact, that it was designed as a flavor, which was palatable to traditional investors. The terms you might remember was something around bait and hook. And that is really designed to become this intermediary space where access to blockchain-driven technologies is comfortable for the generation that is playing a major role in traditional finance. So it's a legacy system, really. And we've always coped with legacy systems. From year dot, mankind has designed and built legacy systems, um, and sorry, transitions from legacy systems, let's say. And so a couple of those examples, you know, might be considered the evolution between the horse and the cart. Well, that was the bicycles and the horseless carriages with the first of those transitions between technology of the horse of the cart. Or maybe the Microsoft operating system versus the Apple Mac. Okay, I'm just teasing there, sorry. <laughs> but we may need to see transitions to assist current generations of institutional investors to assimilate into this world of blockchain-driven, non-intermediary, trustless code transactions. So the likes of Coinbase, Binance, OKX, Kraken, they are in fact, although they're very much software as a service, they are in fact traditional centralized methodologies 
for transacting. And we onboard without real consideration that that's what they are. When we know that there's the likes of, of a number of DLT solutions out there that are code-driven um, decentralized exchanges that can do the same work for us, but they are still not not used to the same extent as some of these big exchanges are, but by the way, they are still doing large volumes. So we're here in this extraordinary transitional period. And it's going to be interesting for us to define what is transition, what is a stake of claim that's going to be occurring from centralized investment industries that are trying to maintain relevance. Um, and what is ultimately probably going to replace them. I think that's a great topic. It's the one you wanted to cover today. It's a great transition from the EDX um, discussion last week. Where do you think we're up to in this transition? Yeah, no, Derek, I think, uh, you know, this all, my thinking behind this triggered when we started looking into the post-merge Ethereum, right? We looked into concentrations of, you know, the staking pools and looked into MEV and what happens to sanctioned addresses. And I began to then look into the big players, right? The whole idea behind the entire thesis of Bitcoin was to empower the common man is to make sure that, mm. you know, currency as a basic human right, which is what Venezuelans have always called now, but given that they've gone through several years of, of oppressive sort of regime in terms, you know, when it comes to finance, and access to currency and ability to be able to live their daily lives. Um, I look into this and I look into the recent rapid pace of crypto institutionalization. In, and that has been fairly rapid in the past, I would say in 2022. Uh, and I do want to discern between the crypto institutions versus institutional crypto. And there is a difference. So I want to spend some time on that, Derek, because I think, um, you know, I, I'm not particularly, I'm curious, but I'm not, exactly very positive about the outcomes where this is heading only because if you're creating another system that's that looks and feels like where we are today and we're simply going towards extreme financialization of yet another asset class that's meant to change the world and what have we really achieved in the last I would say 13 plus years in the name of disruption so we just want to focus on constructs that define the current day's financial institution which has evolved over hundreds of years as we know right and it's become only better it's, more, it's, you know, at least in terms of where it used to be back in the day and where it is now, we have more information, we have electronic systems, we have more, you know, the, the entire premise around efficient market hypothesis in terms of egalitarian access, availability of information, insider trading rules. So existing financial institution deals with constructs, things like liquidity, liquidity ratios, things for you to be able to maintain liquid assets to meet short-term obligations, uh, preventing things like bank runs, preventing things like, you know, insolvency. And these have evolved over time. Uh, leverage, uh, you know, looking into the differential between the operating leverage and financial leverages. Fiduciary responsibility. This is the trust relationship that we have between institutions that hold our assets and keep them safe and, and ensuring that there's enough regulatory elements that keep uh, that fiduciary responsibility in place. Prudential treatment of assets. Uh, market structures, which has evolved over time in ensuring that there's no risk. And institutional crypto, where traditional finance aimed to get into crypto, has been quite rampant. Most recent, as you may have seen, uh, NASDAQ announced yesterday is getting into custody 
you mentioned EDX, um, op, you know, completely removing the complexity of wallets, key management, custody, and trading crypto like you would log on to a website and start trading crypto. It's similar to what you would do now uh, with your brokerage account, with traditional securities, making it super simple. But when you do those things, you rely back on the same market structure that's providing the same set of services. Who's custodian? Who's providing liquidity? Who's the market maker? Uh, we've seen that at BlackRock and and sort of you know uh, their integration with Aladdin platform, uh, which is their investment management platform. We've seen the recent announcement as early as last week in terms of Franklin Templeton offering digital asset strategies to the wealth managers in partnership with another crypto institution called you know Eagle Brook Advisors uh, to make the platform available. So this is the initiative from traditional finance which has taken these constructs and applied them to crypto. And then we look at crypto finance or disruptive finance, which begin to act like institutions. These are called crypto institutions. So Coinbase, um, BitGo, FTX, Galaxy Digital, Wintermute. These companies didn't exist prior to crypto's emergence to, to prominence. And next thing you know, they all have the same look and feel. They all are some of the remnants and some of the talent from Wall Street has gone, gone and built this. Um, they're exchanges, they're prime brokers, they're custodians, they offer payment services. They begin to look like what we do today with our fragmented nature of financial industry in general that has a sprawl in providing different functions uh, from the industry perspective. And then there's another category which I particularly like is exponential finance. Um, and, and this is I, you mentioned this in terms of uh, decentralized exchanges, DeFi protocols, lending pools, uh, a little away, still adhering to some of the tenants, but complex. I don't think people understand and most common people don't have either access to it or understand how they work. It's really very niche crypto entities who understand the space and are able to deal with algo traders and folks who are, who are having multiple wallets and are able to manage these things in a, in a very systematic way. And if you look at any of those three options, I don't see them impacting the common man in any form or fashion because the first two have become unreachable for a common man. And the, the, the latter part is only meant for crypto aficionados and crypto professionals in general. And to me, that's a problem. Um, so I'm going to take a pause before I dive into, I'd like to spend a little bit more in terms of the evolution of existing market structure. What did blockchain aim to change and flatten that market structure and what happens when institutions get into the crypto and what happens when crypto tries to get into the other side uh, there's a clash there's a mismatch in cultural and uh, information uh, you know elements between those two worlds and that creates the challenges that we have seen lately so i'm take a pause derek to see mm. see if that made sense well i'd like to look at it on a positive note here and that is that that the fact that the institutions are paying so much attention to this tiny market of $1 trillion capitalization, you have to remember gold is at about 11.6 trillion capitalization. And if you look at the combined capitalization of, um, of the companies that have uh, supported EDX, their Citadel, um, Fidelity and Charles Swab, they're $13.5 trillion. In some ways, Nitin, we should be flattered they're so interested in this space because they see this as either a, a substantial risk um, on, I think, a substantial reward. But that old saying that, that when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail <laughs> is 
probably what we're seeing here with transitional technology. You know, during the week, you might recall that the White House put out the executive um, order fact sheet um, relating to, you know, what they defined as responsible development of um, digital assets. And, you know, we all had a bit of a read of that. Um, it was a good short version document, easily found. And that document really does look like traditional technology trying to seek traditional solutions to a new technology space. Little within the document, that document, did I find enormously encouraging. Um, so to give you an example, uh, you know, they talked about the fact that 29 million Americans were either um, unbanked or underbanked, and that the cost of their payment transactions were very high. Now, I can hear in the background riding in on horses, I can hear digital assets coming in because the cost of payment transactions can be very low and instantaneous and straight off their phone. But the US government's suggestion to that in the middle of a digital asset paper was that the agencies will encourage the adoption of instant payment systems like FedNow, supported by the development of innovative technologies and payments. So in other words, they rush back to what they know. So this is probably going to be a bit of a combination between you know, wanting to stake ownership in the space and just not understanding, just taking to the space a hammer, looking for nails. Would you say that's the case? So, so I think I, I can actually appreciate, and uh, there was another conversation that I was having with some of our colleagues in terms of evolution of stable coins and central bank digital currencies. And I think we should dedicate, go back to one of my favorite topics in the past is stable coin. We haven't touched stable coins in a while, but, but now oh, that you bring oh. up Derek, uh, is, is the fact that most sovereign nations have always, uh, you know, of course, now the conversation in, in the debate between the regulatory and compliance frameworks around crypto has inflated. But historically, uh, many countries have looked into this from either payments perspective is because payments sort of uh, gives uh, sovereign control in terms of where the money is being spent and understand the economic mm -hmm. systems and in real time and and being able to devise the, and implement the monetary and fiscal policies the central banks can lay out uh, and things like capital outflows, capital inflows, all these are indicative of the policy's effectiveness, which a crypto throws you know, you know, emergence of crypto has really challenged that that notion. Second thing I think is every country's focuses on fiat because fiat gives any policymaker enormous amount of control and and yes. focusing on saying that if you're trying to solve a faster payment issue with crypto, if that's the only solution, which it's not the case, then we do have a solution for it. And you know, Fed now, which has been in making for a few years. Um, which again is meant for US dollar faster payment system, which I think the US uh, in general is far behind only because of burden of legacy. And I think there's a lot riding on those systems. So I can see the interest there. I also see that crypto itself doesn't have enough market depth to address all the payments in the world. So there's a whole element of, of, of these things have to grow to address the demand on the bulk uh, payment nature that suddenly the global economic system is anywhere between from payments perspectives, 28 to $30 trillion. I don't think there's enough crypto there to solve all those payment problems, regardless of volume and velocity of, of these currency that's moving in the system per se. And this is only payments. I'm not talking about other asset classes and like the 471 plus trillion dollars worth of 
of of traditional assets that that are that are locked in in in, in the world. But I will say this though: the general finance, going back to the finance other elements, is that we have rules. Um, you know, the general finance world that has evolved now, we have sort of rules in form of regulation, in form of compliance, defining a fair play and rules of engagement. And yes, there are broken every now and then. People are hopefully caught and punished. Some of them are not. Some of them get caught later and time catches up with them. There's a market structure, the role of various counterparties to avoid uh, the single party risk, giving birth to counterparty risk. So instead of concentrating all our assets management with one entity and money and assets and everything else, giving enormous amount of power for that one entity to, um, to be engaged in malfeasance and fraud, structure was created to say, thou shall provide clearing services, you provide bookkeeping, and that way there's not one single party that has a control, I think in many cases is a form of decentralization. And then you have the market infrastructure. We use the platforms that facilitate movement of assets, trade, transfer, ownership of these things, require a foundational platform. And then you have the instruments and assets themselves. So you have different markets for private markets, for private equities, stocks, and different bonds and money markets. And when blockchain was introduced uh, and it evolved, the aim was to flatten and collapse the structure that I just discussed. The idea was that if you can provide transparency, if you can provide audit records, if you can provide real-time visibility, then all these counterparties that were introduced to counteract that, that transparency or to remove the control, I think, eventually led to blockchain providing at a protocol layer those areas. The question that we begin to ask is, do we need the same old market structure, which was, again, fragmented and decentralized to a decentralized protocol, thereby flattening that business process, flattening and creating a flattened market structure on a transparent, trusted transaction system uh, as a financial infrastructure, enforcing the rules that are codified in the system. That was the premise. Mm. And, and that generated two incentive economic systems and that came into Bitcoin and Ether. Um, and so what happens when institutional crypto gets into this? And this is, again, institutional crypto is when traditional finance gets into crypto, which is used to these complex market structures and platforms and instruments, is it gets confusing as their current business processes and operations forces them to fit into the current operating model. And parallels are drawn into in, in, in sort of breaking the business model due to cost and complexity. So for example, if I'm doing AML KYC, I want to apply the same AML KYC regime to the crypto assets with the same speed, which may take two or two days or three days. I may want to enforce the same set of rules, even though crypto doesn't want to adhere to those rules uh, in terms of blocking transactions, which we all know you cannot block a transaction in crypto in general which you can in traditional finance if there's a, there's a clearing and system, a clearing and settlement process. So you have application of, of this institution start trying to apply the same rules of engagement. And it's sort of, it's like fitting a square peg in a round hole that you begin to sort of break the system because suddenly now you're used to doing certain things and that suddenly breaks. And, and we have seen enough failures in that context uh, where, you know, either the business have failed because they have failed to understand the speed and velocity of crypto transactions or expose themselves because, uh, or two risks, two systemic risks. Uh, and we'll give some examples in a minute. And then you have what happens when, for example, 
crypto finance or disruptive finance, uh, which is native to crypto, by the way. These companies were born, and I give an example of, of FTX, Coinbase, and, and Galaxy Digital, to name a few, BitGo, FT, you know, and Wintermute. Um, they, it's reverse. It's fitting round peg into a square hole where the market structure forces them to fall into a structure alien to crypto. So they are trying to now attract uh, the institutional capital and trying to play by the same rules which crypto is not used to or crypto doesn't inherit you. Mm -hmm. So you have this conflict of those sort of elements. And, you know, um, to me, when I see this, uh, I see a fallout. Um, and this goes back to our contagion of incompetence conversation that uh, Terra Luna, 3AC, Celsius, Voyager are acting like traditional uh, finance and miscalculating the risk of leverage, which should never happen in crypto. Right, the borrowing and lending is very defined in crypto, and we've had over-collateralized models early on that if crypto falls below certain value, there was a sell-off, and that prevented from any over-leverage. Uh, and while it was not the most efficient use of capital, uh, the contagion was limited to people understanding the risks and people ensuring that the investors and the folks who were collateralizing their assets uh, understood the over-collateralization model and took uh, right precautions. And all that changed when uh, these entities begin to borrow with each other with the promise of of a, of a massive return, which I think was was misplaced. And then I see the traditional finance shaping crypto to look and feel and operate like an old system. And we begin to see you now EDX and you know fidelity and crypto options trading and extra. Um, so I'll say one more thing, Derek, and get your perspective is I wonder if this was the intended outcome of our extreme financialization of crypto. Uh, was what we envisioned. And does this solve the industry? What have we really solved uh, besides focusing on ESG and focusing on other elements? Have we really addressed the unbanked and underbanked and financial inclusion agenda uh, and ensuring that we are bringing, you know, improvising the lives of uh, the, the folks who are at the fringes? Was that not the original intent? And where have we landed in 13 years? I'll pause here and get your perspective, Derek. Well, I think it's fair to say that this is a continued journey. This is a snapshot in time that you and I are talking about right now and the listeners are listening to. It's a snapshot in time. And what we're going to expect is probably a number of parallel systems operating over a period of time because it's not just technology generations that we're looking at, something that can move very fast, but it's cultural generations. We're talking about a culture that's used to um, being able to, well, if not on the telephone, but certainly via helpline, resolve issues for transactions that they've, that they've put through. Their culture that's used to having an intermediary in place and, and, a, and a government that's used to being able to control that. It's not what was originally envisaged, I'm sure, by Satoshi Nakamoto or he, she, or they. Uh, however, nothing is lineal in this space. And so these expectations probably will merge and change, I think, over a period of time. So I think what was going to be really important for us is to have a heightened alert, just to make sure that we're watching things such as the discussion around the post-merge staking ownerships and the fact that you really need to have um, about 60-odd thousand US dollars currently in value in Ethereum before you can become a direct staker. Therefore, you have to pull 
Therefore, when you do, there are large pooling organizations. Therefore, we're starting to maybe not see decentralized staking occur as we, as we suggest. That is an area that you've raised before. It's an area that I think it's worth being alert to. The areas that we see, I think from um, major institutions, I'll go back to the beginning, to a degree, we should be flattered that these guys are entering the space, investing large amounts of money and trying to stake out um, uh, you know, their ownership of it. But I think we should be aware too. And I think we should also note as generations are coming, those guys are gonna be look at this and going, well, why would I trade on EDX when I can do a DEX exchange trade instantaneously for a fraction of the amount of money? So I think these are generational positions that a transitional technology is taking, but we should really watch because it's going to be these generations that are going to try and put their anchors into the ground, I believe, and trying to stake claim. What do you think? No, absolutely. And I, I think I think to it's an evolution, as you as like said. And I think it's a, it's a point in time statement. And and I think that hopefully, and I I mean there is hope, Derek, in the sense that I see the recent again, few recent announcements, uh, an event in Barcelona. Uh, this Monday, in fact, uh, Cello Foundation. So Cello is a token that looks into connecting the world uh, using your devices. And, you know, it's an ERC-20 token that facilitates payments. So the idea there is that as long as you had a cell phone and you had Cello, you could make payment from any phone to any phone, which is yes. solving a problem. And they mm. essentially, the Cello Foundation announced Connect the World, a $20 million campaign to incentivize the development of high quality on-ramp and off-ramp worldwide. And I think... That is a step in the right direction in sort of ensuring that we have the ability and Cello actually in general uh, has in, initiated many projects in the past and making it making the DeFi, the decent less financing, uh, more democratic in sense, more available to most people and engage in education campaigns. So it's also introduced something called Fiat Connect, which is an open source application or an API interface allowing for payment providers to use the system to move money. I think it's that's a positive sign. The other thing that I found interesting was uh, that Nova Labs, uh, it, 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 uh, it entered an engagement with T-Mobile uh, to cover a 5G dead spots with Helium Network. And I've been following Helium for quite some time. Uh, and we have, in parts, looking into different segments, as yes. we discussed, there are you know, close to about now 27 different segments in crypto industries. These are sectors that have defined the crypto space. Uh, and I actually have discussed this agreement or this particular technology with many telcos in my, in my previous technology days. And I, no one seemed to understand this, but this one gave me a hope. Uh, these two announcements that happened this week, in addition to the institutionalization uh, news. And, and again, I think today, Wintermute was, was hacked and because they lost $160 million, uh, other elements of their exposure uh, it was it was was uh, surfaced, uh, and again, I just look at these things and say, you know, every day after day, we are seeing vulnerabilities, we are seeing hacks, we are seeing, you know, when people end up losing money because of these or or, or permanent loss of assets because of these hacks and these vulnerabilities. Uh, the other facet of their over collateralization or under collateralization and over leveraged behavior comes into into light, and then I look at these deals with Helium trying to solve connectivity issue, looking at Celo trying to solve the global payment issues, providing on-ramp, off-ramp, providing API for payment ecosystems. 
I think that gives me hope. That gives me hope that that there are few projects who are focusing on, uh, in general, improvising the financial network and technology landscape of the globe itself. And that, in, in my opinion, will generally uplift, create bigger marketplaces, create more liquidity because now people are empowered to make those investments, whether it's cello or whether it's, you know, and, and these are, again, uh, driven by mobile networks. Both of these, one is to, to provide a better coverage uh, using the incentive economic system and truly democratic element of how Helium Network has evolved. The other one is cello foundation. I think to me, some of these uh, projects are, are significant steps in the right direction, um, yeah, you know, I would say, if that if that makes sense. So Web 3.0, Nitin, is going to be very disruptive. In theory, it's, it's promise to be able to truly decentralize and empower consumers or just simply end users uh, to become part of the economy uh, should also balance and maybe drive and direct these centralized organizations that are going to be, uh, that, are, that are staking a claim now. And may I say Web 3.0 is coming. So what do you think of that? I, I, I sense that Web 3.0 may well be the ultimate teller of who's going to be in who's going to be centralized and what centralized exchanges and what centralized services are going to exist or not exist. Pure economics. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I, I think, again, I've written a lot on Web3.0 and its evolution and its emergence, right? And, and it's not just a fad in the sense that I've, I have firmly believed that Web3.0 can only succeed. So the whole premise of Web3.0 is creator-led economy and an ability for people to own, whether it's content, their data, their identity, and things related to them, your healthcare records. And, mm -hmm. and if you want to be able to have a creator-led economic system, we are in charge of things that we value. If we don't do that, then there's always a Web 2.0 world where you can give your data, give your identity, and let some other platform monetize it because you can keep them safe. So there's a huge education campaign that needs to be understood that what does it mean to own? Because when you own something, it comes with responsibility. And when you own something, you need to be able to engage either in a negotiated conversation or engage in a mechanism that understands the value of relinquishing control or giving partial control to an entity and ensure that it's not misused because you're getting, you're able to monetize it. So it's a creator-led economic system. It is and have to absolutely be part of the you know, participative economic system where you have to participate actively. So if I'm blaming Facebook for monitoring my data, well, a part of the blame goes to me because I have fueled that platform with all my posts yes. and all my content. And if I choose to monetize it, then I have to be responsible and understand the mechanics and understand the constructs of Web3.0. Uh, and so I think there's a little bit of the responsibility on every individual who would like to see this Web3.0 sort of vision come to fruition. Until then, the whether it's crypto institutions or institutional crypto, there are still a Web2.0 thinking. It's a mindset that these are still centralized systems. Uh, and anything that becomes too big, especially in terms of value, has the potential for, for it to be compromised, whether it's due to greed or due to systemic failures, I think. So when you talk about responsibility, that's really extraordinary because if you see the generations that are coming, they know about their devices. They know the power of their devices. They know what they can do with their devices. Um, and they're, they're an absolutely integral part of their life. 
So by example, if they're using a web 3.0 solution like Filecoin, and they turned around and said, look, I've got half a terabyte on my phone. Um, I really don't use it. I'm happy for Filecoin to store data on it and to utilize its CPU capacity, by example. Same with my, my iPad or my laptop, et cetera, on the way through. You are taking responsibility that your devices are online. You're taking responsibility that your devices are working because you're getting paid in a token. But what you're doing without possibly consciously thinking about it is you're disrupting the giants like AWS um, and you're dis disrupting the centralized um, solutions around the world. And it may well come to the generations that are coming that their knowledge of their, of their devices, their utilization of their devices, they'll start making money out of those devices rather than just use them as we currently tend to use them as Web 2.0, where we simply look into um, what is on offer and take it and pay for it. No, absolutely. And I think that responsibility, uh, whether it's incentive systems, and I still think we need a lot of infrastructure, uh, it needs to evolve. There has to be massive investments that needs to go into it. Uh, I oftentimes give analogy of, of ESG. Everybody wants ESG, but we haven't really, besides tokenizing carbon credits and besides uh, you know, uh, trying to prevent usage of fossil fuel, we still need the energy. And what have we done to progress uh, to ensure that we have the right infrastructure to consume less energy and, and rely upon more renewable energy resources. Uh, you know, I, I, I find that argument, at least in the Web3 world, is that we haven't significantly made and make significant investments in infrastructure uh, that needs to support that thinking, whether it's massive networking, massive computer infrastructures, massive. Uh, and if, if that infrastructure is still centralized, then it doesn't really matter what you're tokenizing because you still have to go through the same pipes. You still have to go through the same storage mechanisms. And then you end up losing some of those elements. And I think uh, Helium, that's why it's it's interesting because they have taken the same for you know the Lore van, the Lore, you know, radiator network model and democratize to say, hey, if you want to host sort of some equipment on your house and provide the connectivity and constant connectivity. And that could be then piped into the existing elements and then you have control in terms of, mm. I think some of those thinking would have to evolve, but I also don't believe that everything will be decentralized. Uh, you do need, some of the investments are so big that I don't think a, there are business models that can evolve for individuals. So transatlantic cable, the ocean cables, for example, it has to be owned by entity unless uh, the government entities own it. So I think there's a little bit of that uh, but there's a balance. I think we can come to a balance where we can devise some of these things. So Web3 to me, again, you know, is uh, is an interesting long tail play. Though I don't know, Derek, how did we veer into Web3 from crypto institutions to crypto? It's it's an interesting conversation. I think that we have <laughs> we have <laughs> we we have moved into into a whole new area, which I think is needs its own. I would say, you know, uh, time and show. Yeah, certainly does. Well, you know, at the very beginning of this, we started with the statement, resistance is futile and you will be assimilated. <laughs> um, I actually tend to think that ultimately that will happen and Web 3.0 will play a major role in that. Um, but that doesn't mean total assimilation, does it, Nitin? Because this need for centralized um, infrastructure is still going to be there in many cases. Uh, and I think that's the reason why we meandered our conversation from, um, from centralized exchanges through to Web 3.0 on the way through. Um, and so for the listeners, really, we've had a conversation about a snapshot in time. 
there's, there's no immediate change to everything. It's just a steady evolution into what's happening. And, and you are active in this space in regards to often attending um, you know, committee meetings and governmental institutional meetings and seeing them grapple with what to do in this space. Uh, and, and that is going to probably happen for the next 10 years at least, would you not say? No, I think so. And I think I've seen massive appetite, both in terms of learning and, you know, many entities that I've met, both in terms of the uh, institutional world and, and some of the global sort of government bodies that I've worked with, uh, you know, as, as a technologist, there is an appetite and they are amenable to learning and, and giving themselves that advantage that they need. And I think that to me also is very encouraging. And, you know, so I think, uh, I, I still think it's a long-term play. I still think it's a 10-year journey, including some of the central bank digital currency projects that you mentioned and some of the uh, growth of these ecosystems. I'm one thing for certain, and this is something which uh, technology would, uh, would trump uh, the entire movement is that uh, whatever we see today will not be the same by next year. And I'm certain of that. Mm. And, and Whether it's institutional crypto or crypto, crypto institutions, yeah. things will change only because the technology itself will change the adherence to the, you know, for, for many of them to conform to a certain, it, it, it will have to change for this to yeah. evolve, I think. And, and really, the technology that's changing rapidly is changing faster than the culture's changing, but the culture's coming and those generations are coming um, and are going to use this. And that's why ultimately I think the onboarding of this space is going to be enormous beyond what our imaginations are now. Uh, but for now, Nitin, let's talk about Web 3.0 in the, in the, the future episodes, <laughs> because I, I think it's an extraordinarily exciting space. And that might take us a little bit away from this process of centralization, which is not all bad, bad it's just true. traditional. <laughs> I, I have an idea. We should take this Web3 conversation to Metaverse. How about that? <laughs> Great idea. Let's go to the Metaverse. Are we setting in the Metaverse now? <laughs> no, I, I, I wrote something on that. Uh, and, and maybe we should, we should spend some time what it is, uh, you know, at, at some other level. And so, but it was great chatting, Derek. We covered a lot. And I think uh, it gives a chance to opine on what's, what's shaping the world around us. And always, always a pleasure chatting with you on that topic. Yeah, indeed. Always a pleasure chatting with you. See you next week, Nitin. Bye for now. Take care, Derek. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.